This morning's message is entitled, Behold the Son of Man. It's from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I'm going to go ahead and read that passage this morning. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of, the God, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like wool, were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined, refined in a service, in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you in that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Would you go, to me, go with me in prayer? Father, I pray that you would bless us this morning in the reading of your word as you have promised that the reading of your word would bless those who, who read it and who hear it. Lord, I pray that according to your will that we would be blessed, that we would honor you, that we would lift your name in exaltation this morning, and that our hearts would be lifted by, uh, by your word. Father, be with me and show me mercy, Lord, as I try my best to uh, preach uh, this um, awe-inspiring and wonderful text. Um, how might a mere human preach this and understand this? And I, I just, I honestly don't know, Father. And so pray, I pray, Father, that you would show me grace this morning and that you would open our eyes to see our ears to hear and soften our hearts, Father, to your word this morning. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In many ways, this is a very easy sermon to preach. It's a very, very easy text to preach. This is not hard. Um, there's a lot of symbolism going on and things like that, some apocalyptic language. But the truth is, it's not very difficult. For a, a very long time, uh, commentators have known what these symbols mean. And so it's not, a, it's, it's not difficult to preach. But in other ways, this is an exceptionally difficult passage to preach because it's, it's nearly impossible for anybody to convey what is going on here. But I'm going to do my best this morning. Um, as way of an introduction to this passage, uh, we're going we're gonna to scoot right through the first, uh, b between verses 9 through 11, um, and then we're going to get into the meat of this passage. But this morning, this morning is less about uh, symbols and less about what's going to happen in the future and less about all those sorts of things. 
uh, and more about just who Jesus is. That's what this morning is about, okay? And I, I fear that in my own life and in the life of many in the church, but I'll speak for myself, that there are often, I, I, I fear that there are more seasons in my life where the glory of Christ is not as awe-inspiring as it should be. That's what I fear. And my prayer is that for my own life is that I would see Christ as John sees Christ. Now the truth is, if I saw Christ as John saw Christ, I'd probably lose my job. I'd probably lose my job. The grass would grow up tall. The filters and the air conditioners would never get changed. Our engines would fall apart because the oil would go bad. Because if I saw Christ the way John sees Christ, I wouldn't get anything done. I wouldn't get anything done. So here we find John, and he's, this is a Sunday morning. It says that it was the Lord's Day, and we find him banished on Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And he receives a vision from the Lord. It says, he's in the Spirit. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. So all of us, they are in the tribulation, he says. that This isn't something that he's looking forward to. This is something that they are in. He's in the tribulation. And the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, he was on an island called Patmos. And it says here, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why was he banished? to this prison island. It was because of the testimony of Christ. It was because of him preaching and witnessing to Christ. And it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was, on, I was in the Spirit. What does that mean? That sounds sort of ethereal, if you will. It sounds sort of some sort of... And in fact, today, if we heard somebody say, well, I was in the Spirit, it sounds a little hokey, if you will. But what John means by that is that he was being led by the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit that morning. He might have been praying. He might have been singing. He might have been reading God's Word. But regardless, he was in the Spirit. He's being carried along by the Spirit. And then he hears a voice. He hears a voice that sounds like a trumpet. It sounds like a trumpet. Now that is often a characterization of God's voice to his people. It sounds like a trumpet. And in, this voice instructs John to record in a book all that is going to be revealed to him and then deliver it to the seven churches. So let me read this first part again. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, that's Sunday, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These seven churches were vastly different. 
but they're all there in Asia, and we're going to learn more about those in coming weeks, all right? Well, I don't want to focus on that so much today. What I want to focus on is who is this figure, this individual that sounds like a trumpet that is instructing John? That's what I want us to focus on this morning, because I guarantee you that is all that John was focused on when he heard this voice. You know, I've had the privilege of visiting some amazing places in my life. I've seen the beaches of Hawaii, the bush of South Africa, the jungles of Belize, and the mountains of Colorado. And when asked to describe uh, what to see when I, when I visit places like that, it can be difficult, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. If you've gone to some place uh, that is just beautiful, some place you know, that's just mesmerizing, that's wonderful, sometimes when you go back home and you say, well, what was it like? It's kind of hard to put into words what it's like. I mean, it's just kind of difficult. You know, what does the ocean at Hawaii, in Hawaii look like? Well, in some ways, it, it's an ocean, right? But in other ways, it's Hawaii, right? It's Hawaii. I mean, it's not just ocean, it's mountains. It's not just mountains, it's jungle. It's not just jungle, it's arid desert. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on. What is Pike's Peak like? When you look upon Pike's Peak in Colorado, what's a, it's this beautiful mountain, right? However, the difficulty pales in comparison to the difficulty that I have and had describing the Grand Canyon. Now, I have spoken about this before, but I want you to think about it from a little bit of a different perspective. When I stepped out onto the viewing platform and all of the canyon was before me, it was, it was very, it's hard for me to explain what, what was going through my mind. It's difficult to explain and to even comprehend what you're looking at. All of us have seen pictures. Some of us have seen the Grand Canyon. If you've seen the Grand Canyon... You know what I'm talking about because you've seen pictures. You may have even seen videos, but when you're there looking at this massive thing, how do you describe it? I mean, seriously, it's as if every canyon, gorge, or ravine that I had ever been privy to before were merely cracks in the pavement. That's the Grand Canyon. Everything else is just a crack in the pavement. And then you have the Grand Canyon. I have seen pictures, but a two-dimensional photograph cannot compare to the evidence of the hand of God carving out the earth. Now, why do I bring this up? I think about that experience when I read about John's experience, experience that he records in Revelation. I think about what it must have been like and all those thoughts and those images racing through his mind when he receives a vision of the risen Christ, the Son of Man in all of his glory. I mean, imagine this. He's praying. All of a sudden, he hears a voice like a trumpet behind him. He turns around, and there is Christ all in his glory. And what we see is, is that John struggles in his attempt to describe what he's seeing. 
Sure, others before him have recorded similar visions. We know that in Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel, all those prophets had seen similar visions, and they themselves had difficulty writing this down, and they write it down, and John knows the Old Testament, and he's like, I don't know what I'm seeing, but it seems to compare to what these other prophets before me have also seen. So this morning, what I hope to convey is what I believe John experienced in hopes that you will catch a glimpse of the splendor of the king. Now let's look at some spectacular symbols this morning, okay? When trying to describe something amazing, like we have seen, like the Grand Canyon or El Capitan in Yosemite in California, we often try to use analogies or comparisons, don't we? Well, so if I'm trying to describe the ocean at Hawaii, if I'm trying to to describe El Capitan, what do I do to somebody who's never seen that, who's never experienced that? Well, I try to use analogies. Well, you remember that, you know, that sheer wall as you're driving up 127, you know, like you're driving up 127 towards the church and there's that sheer rock wall, right? Well, El Capitan's kind of like that. Only instead of being 100 foot tall, it's 3,500 feet tall and it's flat as glass. You know, I mean, you just try to compare it, right? Well, in Revelation, John does a similar thing because John is well versed in the Old Testament. And John witnesses these visions and immediately draws a comparison to images he had read about in the Old Testament. So let's look at Revelation 1 12 through 16 and see what John sees. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You know, it's funny, I I read all these images and somebody who likes art and comic books and stuff like that, I immediately kind of see like, what would this look like on paper? You know, what if somebody, and what's really cool is this fella, um, I I can't remember the the fella's name, uh, but he actually put in a graphic novel the book of Revelation and tried to depict these images in Revelation so people could kind of somewhat grasp what it is. I'm looking forward to seeing that. And so these images and these symbolism can be a little bit difficult for us to handle. All right, so what I want to do is I want to just walk through them simply. All right, I want to walk through them slowly so that we can unravel them and demonstrate that they're not all that complicated and there's some meaning to the madness, if you will. Okay, so let's start with the lampstands and the stars because that's an easy place to start. Okay, so he says here, with the lampstands, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. So the lampstands and the stars. When John first turns around, he sees these golden lampstands, and amongst these seven lampstands, this figure is amongst the lampstands. He's not behind it, he's not ahead of it, he's not above it, below it, he is in the middle of these lampstands, right? And this figure is also holding seven stars, okay? Now, the nice thing is the individual that's in the vision kind of explains what those mean, what they symbolize. He says in verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars 
are the angels of the seven churches. Now, when we say the seven churches, those are the churches that we're writing to. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, all those, okay? And the seven lampstands are those churches. So we see here that this figure is amongst the seven churches that John is writing to, all right? Now, in the Old Testament, we read that lampstands were placed strategically in the tabernacle and the temple in order to bring light to the sanctuary. So we have these, you know, these light bulbs lighting up our worship center. Well, that's what lampstands did in the Old Testament. They, would, they didn't have electricity, okay? And so they brought in lampstands and they, they circulated them strategically around the, the tabernacle and the temple so that it would light what was happening. Now, these places were places of worship. God's work was being accomplished in these places, and these lampstands shined a light on them. They illuminated them, as Tom Schreiner describes it. And so the idea is that the light from the lampstands are meant to bring light into this place of worship, revealing the work of God. So like the lampstands, these churches are meant to be the light of Christ in the world. Are we a lampstand? Let me just ask you that this morning. Are we a lampstand, and more importantly, are we a lampstand that is lit? Are we a lit lampstand shining the light of Christ into our community? We need to ask ourselves that. Or do we run the risk of having our lampstand taken away? Every church needs to ask themselves that from time to time. These lampstands represent the churches and the light of Christ that they are shining into the world. Now, in addition, the figure says that the seven stars represent the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, what does that mean? Okay, that's kind of, that, that sounds kind of mystical, right? Sort of symbolic. Now, I could go, we could take an entire Bible study to talk about this, but we're not, that's not the point of this message. There are some commentators that believe that the seven stars or the seven angels are symbolic or an analogy to the pastors or the elders of those seven churches. So John is writing to the elders of the churches, and this figure, this son of man-like individual, is calling them angels. Well, that's plausible. It makes sense. The problem, though, is angel, the word angel, is never used throughout the book of Revelation in that way. When it uses the word angel, it means angel. Heavenly angels. So there is no reason why it would imply pastor or elder at this time. So we believe, all right, and I agree with this, that, that John is instructed to write to these angels of the churches, okay? And these angels, what are they there for? Well, it, we're not 100% sure, but it's likely that these angels are committed to these seven churches and they, they protect, they oversee and even worship with these churches. Is it, is it an astounding thought? See, we all think that as we're here singing, you know, the 25, 30, well, we're Baptists, the 150 of us, okay, that are, that, are, that are sitting here worshiping this morning, okay? We, we all think, well, we're just singing songs and it's just us, right? What if there is a heavenly host that is worshiping right along with us. We don't see them. We don't feel them. But as Crystal is lifting up 
Revelation song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We sing that, but louder still, the angels are proclaiming that. What if that's the case? I believe that it is. I believe that every time a believer on earth is rejoicing in Christ, so is the host of heaven rejoicing. Remember that morning when Jesus, when, when it was alerted to the shepherds that Jesus was born, the Savior was born, who was doing the singing, the angels in the heavens. I think any time that any believer is, going, is exalting God and praising the name of Christ, angels get excited. They get excited. And they're worshiping right along with us. Now, folks, I'm not making that up. We could go all the way throughout Scripture and find elements of that. Okay, we're just not this morning. So for some reason, this figure is instructing John to write to these angels. Okay, and these, this letter is then going to be disseminated to the churches. But I want to mention one other thing here. One more thing about this symbolism that would be real easy to just pass over. Where is Jesus? See, this figure that is writing, that's, that's sharing the vision, it's Jesus. In fact, if you look in a red-lettered Bible, all that's being said is in red. There is more red in this chapter and what you're going to see in Revelation than you see in some of the Gospels. I mean, it's just blood red because it's Christ. So where is Jesus in all of this? He is amongst the churches. That's where he is. Christ is with us. He's not just with these seven churches. He is with us. He promised that he would never leave nor forsake us. What does that mean? It means that he is with us. He is not far from us. He is working on our behalf. I think it's just beautiful imagery that Christ is not just soaring over top or to the side or instructing from behind or leading from ahead. He is right smack in the middle of these churches. And that's a beautiful picture. Now let's look at the characteristics of the Son of Man. It seems that John is relating much of what, what he sees in this vision to what Daniel see, saw. So if you read Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel chapter 10, you're going to see some striking similarities between what Daniel saw and what John saw. That makes sense, right? Because God doesn't change. There is no changing with God. It, he is who He is. Now, we're not going to review those passages. But what we will say is this, is that God blessed Daniel with a vision of the future. And what was revealed was glorious, and it provokes us to worship. And what John sees is remarkably similar. Now, this Son of Man language evokes imagery from the Old Testament. Now, oftentimes in Isaiah and others, the term Son of Man actually meant a man. It meant a human being. But in Daniel, it meant something more. It meant actually something angelic, something spiritual. 
if you will. But what we're going to see in Revelation, it means something even more that it means something divine. Because this, this is no just angel. This is not just a host of heaven. This is the one who is going to live forever. This is the one who died but rose again, he says. This is the one, this son of man, holds the keys to death and Hades. No angel has the keys to death and Hades. Jesus does. This son of man has a, wears a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. It symbolizes the priestly nature of Christ. That Christ was not just Savior, he was not just King, but he also served as a priest. In addition, the figure's hair was white as snow, like wool, and his eyes were like flames of fire. What does that mean? What does that white hair symbolizes? The white woolen hair implies that the figure is pure and wise beyond description. There's wisdom there. There's knowledge there. There's omniscience there. And the eyes, like fire, represents judgment and condemnation oftentimes. But here, many believe that it represents the discernment. The discernment that he is cutting through, that his eyes pierce through everyone. It's amazing how many of us try to hide from God. We try to hide our innermost thoughts, our innermost feelings from God. Folks, we are trying to hide something from Jesus, from the one whose eyes pierce through our very souls. We are trying to hide things. Don't run from the Lord. In fact, he tells John, do not fear. His feet were like burnished bronze and his voice like the roar of many waters. Both of these representing power and sovereignty and the command of Christ. And then finally it says that out of his mouth came a double-edged sword and that his face shone like the sun. But we know that the sword represents his word. That his word cuts on both edges. That it cuts deep. That it pierces through. And that his face, like the sun, evokes glory and majesty. Now remember, in all of these instances, John is utilizing Daniel and possibly other Old Testament authors to help describe what he is seeing. They're symbolic these are apocalyptic images meant to convey, convey truth. Remember, John is struggling here. He says his face was like, like wool. His, his eyes were like flames of fire. He didn't say they were. He said they were like. What does that mean? He means, I don't have words to convey what I'm seeing, so I'm going to do my best. And my best seems to be comparison to what Daniel saw. And so I'm just going to use that imagery to help you understand what I am seeing before me. Now, what's the point of all this? Why does John even mention this? The truth is, is that Christ is nearly too glorious to put into words. The Jesus that we often ignore, the Jesus that we often put aside, the Jesus that we at times grieve is too glorious to put into words. We go throughout our day 
And Jesus, at times, just becomes sort of this side thing, right? I don't know, most of us aren't into video games and all that kind of stuff, but this just comes to mind, okay? Maybe it'll resonate with you. You're playing this video game, right? You're in the middle of this video game, and you're going from point A to point B. But oftentimes in these video games, you have this side mission, right? You don't really have to do it, but it makes the game more interesting, right? All right, so you go do the side mission. Some of you all are like, yeah, I know what that means. You don't want to admit it, but you do, okay? All right, it's that side mission, right? Jesus is not a side mission, Jesus is the point. He is the main thing. He is too glorious to put into words. So what is our only response? John writes in Revelation 1, 17 through 19, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. Remember, previously, God said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. That's an amazing passage. When all you've seen your entire life are puddles on the ground, but then you stand on the edge of the Pacific Ocean, your emotions shift, don't they? Imagine that. All you've seen your entire life are puddles, not even farm ponds, puddles on the ground. And then you stand before the Pacific Ocean. You can just get dropped right there on the edge. That's going to shift your emotions. You don't stand at the base of Mount Everest with the same apathetic attitude as you would a molehill. You don't. And you don't stand in the same type of awe and wonder at the sight of cracks in the pavement as you do when you behold the Grand Canyon. There is a different emotion, a different attitude. Everything's different about that experience. As I read about individuals who stand before the living God in Scripture, their response is almost always the same as John reveals to us here. John fell at the feet of Christ as if he were dead. He turns around at the sound of trumpets and he sees this vision of Christ. And it wasn't, what's up, dude? Hey, Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy. That was a t-shirt back in the 90s. It made me cringe in the 90s. He fell at his feet as if dead. It doesn't even say he fell at his feet to worship. He fell as if he were dead. He could not take it. That's Christ. Now I want you to remember this. John walked with Jesus. He was the beloved disciple. He wrote the gospel of John. He wrote the letters of John. He knew Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He served with Jesus. But when he witnesses the risen Christ in his glorious state, all right, he is undone. It brings to mind Isaiah chapter 6. 
the vision of the temple and the robe just filling the temple. And what does Isaiah say? I am undone. How many of us, when we read about Christ, think about Christ, or experience Christ, are truly just undone? If you're not, you will be. Jesus tells him, though, he puts his right hand on John. And picture this, puts his right hand on him and says, do not fear. You know, when we're grieving, when we're mourning, when we are in fear or when we're just unsettled and somebody comes up and puts their hand on your shoulder, someone you know, right? Not somebody creepy, all right? Somebody you love and they put their hand on your shoulder. It's a sign of comfort. Jesus puts his hand on John's shoulder. And what does he say? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now your parents, my parents, I as a parent, will go to my, I'll go to my kids, my parents went to me, and you went to your kids, and at times you'd put your hand on their shoulder or you'd embrace them when they were afraid. And you would say, don't fear, or don't be afraid, or you don't need to be scared. I have oftentimes told my boys, when they're nervous or they're scared because they're afraid that somebody's going to get in the house, I say, boys, you don't have to be afraid of anything because daddy's here. And if they ask, well, what if they get past you? I say, well, mommy's here. No, I don't. I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. <laughs> what do I tell him? I say, Jackson, or I said to Lucas when he was younger, Jackson, Lucas, no one's getting past me to get to you. No one. I won't let it happen. You do not have to be afraid. And that's what Jesus is saying to John. You don't have to be afraid. Because I am the one who is and who was. I died and I will, I'm alive forevermore. I hold the keys to death and Hades. You don't have to be afraid of anything. Folks, there is nothing that I can say to my boys to give them that much peace. But Jesus can. It gives me chill bumps. I mean, everywhere. It raises the hair on the back of my neck, thinking that Christ is saying, fear not. Why? Because when I'm amongst you, there is nothing to fear. There is nothing to fear. Nothing. I understand that we might be fearful of things like heights, bees, spiders, snakes, rabid chickens. I don't know. Frogs, frogs, frogs. frogs. That's for another sermon. <laughs> Actually, well, no. We'll get that into Exodus, okay? But for the Christian, death should not be one of those things. Why? Because Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. Sometimes we give the devil more power than we should. Folks, the devil is not Jesus' co-equal. It's not a yin and a yang. 
all right, that there's like evil and then there's good and they're like equal forces. That is not true. God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, they are perfectly omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent and everything, and the devil is a pawn in this whole scheme. The devil does not hold the keys to Hades. The devil does not hold the keys to death. Christ does. Just remember, Christ throws the devil in the pit when everything's over. We do not have to be afraid. When we approach Christ, our response, our response, and hear me here, we're almost done. Our response should never be casual. Our response to Jesus should never be casual. We have fun and we joke and, and things like that, but our response should never be casual. It should never be apathetic. This is the King of Kings we're talking about. This is our Redeemer. This is our Savior. I fear that our zeal for missions, service, and evangelism has diminished because our response to the glory of Christ has diminished. How can you convince somebody to have affection for Jesus which you do not share? How is it possible? I, I find it, every, every preacher, every teacher has a different personality. Okay, I get that. We all have different personalities. Some are more stoic. Some are more reserved, and some are way more charismatic, okay? I stay in one spot for the most part, all right? But when I'm preaching this, when a preacher preaches this kind of text, how can the most stoic person in the world not get excited? I mean, a Presbyterian will start smiling, Okay? I love Presbyterians, all right? But you get what I'm saying, right? An old traditional Southern Baptist will raise their hands. How can you not get excited about who Jesus is? John Piper writes in his book, The Hunger for God, and he says this, If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. If when you read the Bible, you hear about Christ, and it doesn't move you, it doesn't change you, it doesn't affect you, it's not because, well, I've read that so much and I've heard that so much that I'm just bored now. That's not the case. Folks, there is enough in here and there is enough in Christ to fill you for five lifetimes. Christ is enough. But I don't believe we could ever get enough of Jesus. There's just so much to behold. It's because we're distracted by the world. If you find that your emotions for Christ have diminished your desires for Jesus, your affections for Jesus has diminished. It's not because of Jesus. 
Don't blame Jesus. Don't blame a preacher. Don't blame your parents. Don't blame a teacher. Don't blame anything that, like that. It's not on them. It's on you. And the, the resolution to that is not difficult. As Christ will say and John will reveal, what did we do? We get back to our first love. We put away the childish things of the world that are distracting us. And we get back to our first love. If our affections for Jesus have diminished, Jesus has not diminished. It's because other things in the world are filling these holes that Christ were meant to fill, was meant to fill. John is instructed by Jesus to share the revelation to the seven churches. However, more important than all these symbols, all the prophecies, all the future joy that, we will, ha- that will be had is just the truth of the glory of Jesus. Folks, whatever we preach about or talk about in the next 21 chapters, it, do, it is not more important than the fact that Jesus is risen and reigning and glorious. We get so caught up in dates and times and all these measurements and revelation, and we lose track of the fact that Jesus is king. That's the point. And now he walks amongst the churches in all of his glory. What keeps you this morning from face planting on the ground at the very mention of his name? Have we lost our awe and wonder of Jesus? John Owens writes this. On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes. And I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy in comparison to the glory of Christ. And here's how I make sense of that quote. In comparison to Jesus, oceans are merely puddles. In comparison to Jesus, Mountains are merely molehills. And in comparison to Jesus, the Grand Canyon is just a crack in the pavement because nothing compares to the glory of Jesus. Nothing. Let's pray.